You're listening to Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization project recorded out of 312 Maine. This podcast is produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Below the Radar brings forward ideas to encourage meaningful exchanges across communities. Each episode, we interview guests on topics ranging from environmental and social justice, arts, culture, community building, and urban issues. This podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Hi, I'm Rachel Wong, and today on the show we are joined by Astra Taylor, the director behind the film What is Democracy? The film tackles a seemingly simple question, but as it goes on, we quickly learn that democracy is so much more than everyone getting a vote. Astra is a writer, filmmaker, and political organizer who has also written a book on the same theme, titled Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. The book is out now from Metropolitan Books. Our host, M. Johal, sits down with Astra to take a deep dive into understanding what democracy is and who gets to participate in it, realizing that this is an ongoing conversation that must be had. Welcome to Below the Radar. This is Am Johal. We're delighted uh, to have Astra Taylor uh, with us uh, this evening for the for the episode. And I'm also joined by Maria Cecilia Saba, who works here in, at SFU with me. Um, we're going to be screening what is democracy this evening um, at SFU, and I'm going to read just a little bit of the description. Uh, Coming at a moment of profound political and social crisis, what is democracy reflects on a world we too often take for granted. What does it mean for the people to rule? And is that something we even want? Director Astra Taylor's idiosyncratic philosophical journey takes us from ancient Athens' groundbreaking experiment in self-government to capitalism roots in medieval Italy, from modern-day Greece grappling with financial collapse and a mounting refugee crisis to the United States, reckoning with its racist past and the growing gap between rich and poor. Uh, She walks through with theorists Sylvia Federici, Cornel West, Wendy Brown, Angela Davis, uh, and others. And in this uh, particular political moment of rising populisms, right-wing populisms, and challenges to human rights in various places and authoritarian figures, uh, this is such an important topic to be taking up. And I'm wondering where you, first of all, you know, started with this uh, idea to to begin this project. Mm-hmm. There's different stories about how I began it. I mean, I the the seeds of it are definitely in 2011, and so it's quite interesting the timing of the film because once it was finished, everyone was like, "Oh my God, this film is so timely!" But that wasn't the sort of reaction I was getting when I was beginning it. Um, beyond the National Film Board of Canada, which you know, in sort of enthusiastically signed on. Um, you know, I think the film was greenlit at the end of 2014. When I told most people at, <laughs> that year that I was going to write a book and make a film about democracy, they were like, well, that sounds like a civics class that I don't want to take. Um, but I was, still, I was still thinking about 2011 and what, what happened in 2011. There was this wave of mobilization from the Arab Spring to the sort of movement of the squares in Europe. I mean, uh, in South America, I was part of Occupy Wall Street in the US. I mean, in 2012, there was I Don't Know More. There was like this resurgence of political energy that had been so absent. And 
many of these movements, I mean, the vast majority of them, if not all of them, were united around a call for real democracy. And this was what you would hear, real democracy. And the, the, the sentiment was, you know, whatever we have, whether that is an, autoc- an autocratic regime or, you know, European social democracy or liberal democracy, which is supposedly the apex of, of you know, the end of history, this isn't democracy, right? And so that word was ringing out and, and ringing in my mind. And it was an interesting word. My reaction was not 100% enthusiastic because I came of age in the aughts. You know, I spent my 20, 20s against the backdrop of the, you know, the never-ending war, the war that, you know, the, we just had the 16th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq and, and people like, you know, George W. Bush saying, I'm bringing democracy to, uh, to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And so for me, democracy was actually this really troubled word. It wasn't a word that I just felt. It was a word I felt was sort of empty and patriotic and, and problematic. And, and yet I knew sort of, I knew intellectually that it had a deeper meaning. But I think there, when I began the film, you know, I, I, I wanted to get back to philosophical basics. I wanted to think about the film, but I also, I, I was also open to coming to other words. I mean, you know, there are lots of other words that did inspire me <laughs> and still do like revolution and and socialism and liberation and emancipation and equality and freedom, you know. So, um, but yeah, the word democracy was something something that I just felt that I really had to had to seriously think through. And you know, the movie is also really informed by my work as an activist. So, out of Occupy Wall Street, I became involved in organizing around indebtedness. So I co-founded something called the Debt Collective. So, it's a union for debtors. We launched the first ever student debt strike in 2015. It's um, you know, the, the, it's a new, it's, we're trying to open a new avenue to tackle inequality, financialization, Wall Street. <laughs> and so we've won a billion dollars of debt relief for our members, but also just doing the hard work of organizing. It's like, why, is, why are democratic principles so hard to enact? So the film is also me thinking through that, like just the endless struggle and all the work that democratizing our society takes. One of the things I really uh, love about your work is this sort of relationship uh, that you draw between philosophy and politics, but also a kind of philosophy that circulates in public and daily life, mm-hmm. something that's not sort of captured within the institution of uh, the academy. And And I'm just wondering how you were sort of drawn into bringing philosophy into public through the medium of, of film. Yeah, I mean... This is definitely, it's just something I do feel inclined to do. I mean, I've, only, I've made three films. They're all about philosophical themes. <laughs> and I think part of it is, you know, there's part of it that's, it's like, I like movies that have intellectual themes. I think I'm, I'm sometimes bored with what we, what I'm bored with story as it's traditionally conceived. It's like, oh, it has to be a character and, and they have to, have to grow and then there's a resolution. And it's like, well, no, you know, stories can be so much more like an abstraction can be a character like why why are we so um you know so democracy is the 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 star of the film and then that it's refracted through all of these you know not just people but through spaces or through historical events i mean so part of me just wants to sort of i want more films like this to exist so um so you know i guess i'm gonna have to make them but i think (laughs) the you know, the, uh, the short answer to your first question, like, why did I make this film, is actually that my mom suggested I make it. And so in 2013, I got an email from my mother, Maria Taylor, and it said, you know, I've been thinking, I think you should make a film about democracy. It ties everything that you're doing together. 
And, and uh, you know, and I was like, that's a pretty good idea. And, and one thing, you know, she said, and, and it's true and it's in the film too, is that democracy always advances from the margins. It's not something that, you know, evolves from the center, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the thing about my mom being significant to your second question is that she... Um, so my mother went to an alternative school in Carcross in, uh, in the Yukon Territory in the early 70s. It was a democratic school, um, and she brought this radical pedagogy that she had been exposed to into our house and raised us as radical unschoolers. So for me, learning was never limited by class times. It was never motivated by grades or sort of punishments, detentions, detention. So we were unschooled, which is this you know, very idealistic um, you know, child-centered way of, of approaching learning and human development. And, you know, I think in my films you see that spirit of like, well, why do ideas just have to be things that we study in the classroom or um, why are they things that we think of as being sort of stuck in books? I mean, I love books, but ideas are also built into the environment we live in and, and they're, things that, they're things that we don't just think but we feel we, we actually inhabit ideas and ideologies in this really profound way. And so I think that for me, that's a residue of this upbringing where learning was not sort of contained in the way that it is in school. At the same time, I really love academic um, specialization. I, I'm sort of like, I picture myself as a kind of barnacle on the university because I so, you know, I'm like... We, we feel like that too. <laughs> exactly. Like I'm always here. I'm always like, hi, I have actually read your, you know, obscure <laughs> articles and, and all of your books that you think nobody reads. And so I, you know, and, and I'm trying to sort of celebrate it. Um, so that's, you know, that's sort of my position. But the film is also saying, but hold on, it's not just the scholars who are experts. Because yeah. in this film, you know, it very much, the film is very much engineered to also ask, well, who is an expert on democracy? Who is a philosopher? Who has wisdom about the way the world works? Who can actually see the power structures? And, you know, I'm 100% convinced that people, you know, below, people who are not sort of ensconced in a sort of bubble of privilege have a much more astute political analysis. And that was definitely borne out by going around for, you know, a few months and and interviewing random people on the street. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I like what you're saying there. Um, I'm curious to know how you feel that being brought up outside of the traditional schooling system, which can be very standardized and hierarchical, influenced your way of thinking about where knowledge comes from and how you relate to the world in general. Like, um, I went to a traditional school and I know how sometimes the top-down structures imposed by the traditional schooling system can feel like they limit the development of your own curiosity and independent critical thought. Um, you also mentioned that your mom was a critical unschooler herself. So I wonder how being nurtured in this unschooling tradition helped the way you shaped the way you think about knowledge and philosophy. I mean, I think it really, there are, there's so much there actually, but at the heart of the unschooling ethos is trust, trust in the child. And so trust is not a limited commodity. It's not something that the universe just has this certain amount of and we have to really meet it out to people in a stingy manner, right? It's actually an infinitely, it's not even renewable, like it just exists. Like, and so, you know, unschooling begins with this sort of radical trust in, in, in the child and, and says, okay, you know, human beings are naturally curious, like let's go with that. And I think there's something... Um, I think democracy, like democracy in the sense of people engaging in 
collective self-determination like requires that. You have to trust your fellow citizens. You have to trust that they can rise to the occasion and make good decisions. And so that's where, you know, I think that that's, and that this making this film was also an exercise in trust because I was like, okay, instead of just going to people I know are quote unquote, you know, brilliant or, you know, or I could say, well, oh, I interviewed them because they're important and the world recognizes that. I was like, I'm going to spend some time just, you know, talking to, you know, regular human beings who haven't made it their their life's work to sort of become, a, you know, um, an expert in political philosophy or, or government or um, something that legitimizes their opinion or, you know, makes people take them seriously. So I think the trust thing is really part of it. And the second thing I will say is that I feel the one very positive thing from Unschooling too is that it's all about curiosity. It's not so much about actually being an expert, you know, because it, what the motor of it is the curiosity of the child versus the knowledge of a teacher because there is no teacher. <laughs> and for me, that's really shaped what I think an intellectual is. And this is why the, the, the title of the film has a question mark at the end because, A, I think we need to keep asking this question, what is democracy? But also because I think that it's, it's, it, it's a, the question mark signals curiosity and we, we so devalue asking questions. We think of that, oh, the asking question is, that means you're coming from the position of ignorance, not of knowledge, right? Um, and, and for me, being an intellectual, is, is, it's, it's about questioning. It's about always wanting to learn, about wanting to learn from other people, about wanting to learn from a book, <laughs> about you know, wanting to learn from a stranger you meet on the train. And so I think the film is also, just in, in its form, in its title, is also making a case for a motive philosophical intellectual engagement that de-emphasizes sort of the being the authority and the professor and, and emphasizes being someone who questions, who wants to engage in conversation with others, wants to listen to what other people have, have to say. And for me, that's really, you know, an essential part of the film is also, you know, saying, yeah, an intellectual endeavor is one that's about learning <laughs> and learning together. And I really, I really like the title of the film because I think oftentimes when we use or say the word uh, democracy in a kind of mainstream normative uh, sense, people are oftentimes thinking about elections or the state or government in this sense. And I think one of the things in, in posing it as a question and speaking uh, with the people that you do in, in various ways um, is that you know sometimes democracy is this thing that maybe doesn't exist all the time. Maybe it is an exception that only exists from time to time, and uh, and in fact it uh, sometimes is antagonistic to the state. And and you put that into the field of play in terms of you know when you're talking to people like Silvia Federici, like there's definitely that can sometimes be out of. Um, at least in the normative educational experiences, that's a very different view of how we think about democracy oftentimes. Yeah, totally. I mean, I also like what you just said, which like, you know, democracy only exists for these, maybe it's something that, that has never existed or exists for these fleeting moments. And so the companion book, which is coming out soon, is called Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. And I'm trying in, with that paradoxical title to say, we've never had a full democracy, which doesn't mean things haven't democratized, there can't be progress. But for me, it's this, it is this sort of perpetually, you know, elusive horizon because mm -hmm. we keep expanding our conception of what it could be, you know, and, and who could be included or 
what could be included. You know, it might one day democracy might go beyond the human. It might, you know, already there are these beautiful struggles that they go back and and are drawing from indigenous philosophies, but about the rights of nature and you know giving personhood to lakes and rivers and ecosystems. And so I'm, I I think we're like just at the beginning of this democracy thing if we can survive as a species. But I think that, um, I mean, democracy absolutely can't be limited to the state. I mean, to me, I'm just like, how could you think that? But people do. Yeah. Um, and they think democracy is voting. And that's such a, a tragic disfiguration of what democracy, you know, is and can be. And so the film acknowledges that, you know, there's a sort of electoral moment in the beginning. You, you don't see like anyone voting or anything, but then it goes on to the other, these other institutions or domains of life. So... Yeah. Education, healthcare, it talks about you know um, the prison industrial complex, it talks about the workplace. I mean, I think we you know the challenge of this century, I think, is democratizing all of these other spheres of existence and above all others, the economy. I mean, yeah. that's really where we need to go. Yeah, and and there's um, there's um, other philosophers like Elaine Badu who calls it sort of the pantomime of state politics, the the mode of voting. But on the other hand. There's really important parts uh, in the film uh, that are also talking about, you know, the way that um, uh, voting rights and those types of things, people, um, um, uh, barriers being placed in, in front of people and these kinds of aspects. So in some sense, uh, it, it's it's something that functions outside of the state, but at the same time, you, you, you still, there's a need to engage with the yeah. state and, and this kind of disenfranchisement that happens, which is kind of used as a mode by populist leaders, be it Modi in India or Erdogan in Turkey or Brazil or the United States. And so in some sense, the state is still in the field of play, yeah. even if there's a critical orientation. Yeah, it. right. And I think the thing is, you know, we can think all these things at once. We can think yeah. like voting isn't the sort of apex of democracy. And in the film really goes there because the film talks about, you know, the fact that there have been other democratic systems run by sortition or selection as opposed to elections. So like random, you know, and I more and more like actually just would like to see, I think elections are so pathological in terms of, you know, you know, who, who feels entitled to run for them, how much money they need to raise, the sort of uh, bandwagon effect of celebrity and especially in a social media era. So, uh, you know, I would, I would actually, I'm, um, I'm almost ready to abolish elections myself. Um, but that sounds authoritarian. <laughs> so, I'm like, if you could vote for me, my platform will be, you know, liberty by lottery and not uh, none of this election crap. But um, but I think, but we have to think both. We have to think like, yeah, this isn't this isn't the apex, and yet there's a reason that the powerful have tried to limit, you know, access to the ballot, and then once people fought for it, have managed to know, um, weigh people's votes differently and sort of, uh, you know, create barriers, you know, supposedly sort of racially neutral or class neutral barriers to entry. So I think, you know, I don't know. I trust that we can, you know, again, have that sort of paradoxical mindset where we're like, we're critical of, of the sort of sanctimony around elections and know that we need social power that's outside the state pushing, but we can also engage because, you know, the People have to use every every lever of power to create change that 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 we can. We can't we can't really afford to just like write one domain off. Uh, when you were doing the the interviews with, with the, the, the the with the film, um, who were the the people that sort of said something that you weren't expecting, or it took it in a direction that wasn't uh, pre planned? 
Right. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, I think um, I was quite surprised. I mean, in terms of who made it into the film, there's a there's a, an interview with a young man who I met uh, at an abandoned airport outside of Athens, and it, this abandoned airport was being used as a refugee a camp for refugees, and he, came, he comes from Afghanistan. His name is Abid, and um, and he defined democracy as justice, and that surprised me because after months of going around and interviewing people, I was so accustomed to people telling me democracy was freedom, you know. And so, and I was I was still heartbroken by the end of the film because nobody told me democracy was equality, which I think says a lot about our age. But his. His um, comments, I think, were things also that, you know, someone like me who's a sort of, you know, pretty hardcore lefty, like, okay, not even pretty, but, you know, and is um, often inclined to sort of abolitionist perspectives in terms of criminal justice and things, you know, hearing someone who came from a sort of failed state who was, who was, his perspective was, he's Hazara, which is an ethnic religious minority, and people wanted to kill him based on his background for no other reason. And he really wanted there to be a state to protect him, to protect his life. And so for him, freedom was like the freedom of the majority to end his existence, right? And so that was also, you know, it's like you have to, not you have to, but, you know, I have to, I think what, what it taught me was that I have to listen to people who have different experiences, right? And, and, and be reminded of the things I take for granted, you know, a sort of basic security. Um, so that was a really interesting one. Um, there's a, uh, an, I did another set of interviews with young um, Republican supporters of Donald Trump. And this is a bit of a longer answer, but um, what surprised me was that, um, you know, for many decades, since the sort of, especially since the fall of the Berlin Wall, we've been told that democracy and capitalism go together. This is a sort of end of history thesis, Right. Capitalism and democracy are synonymous. They're in this happy marriage. They support each other. And I, what we're seeing right now politically is there's a, a you know a shift to the the left. And so I think many people are saying, hold on, capitalism. And I would agree with this. Capitalism concentrates wealth and power, and therefore is um, you know anathema in many ways to democracy. So we need an economically egalitarian socialist. Call it what you like, but some system of of economic fairness and sustainability that that can make political equality possible. It hadn't really occurred to me, there's a whole other subset of people who were going the opposite direction. So these kids were basically like, we don't care about democracy, right? We don't care. We want to be on top. And so they were also letting go of that old story, right? And they were saying, we prefer capitalism, even if that means that we have to hold on to power through very undemocratic means. We don't actually, we know we don't like democracy because that would mean people making welfare state demands on us. So that was... Interesting, you know, mm-hmm. so and a sign of a, a, a divergence that I think that's very different. So you mentioned in the introduction, you know, the rise of authoritarian populism and populism has, it's not synonymous with democracy, but it kind of has like, we the people, we're the majority, we're beleaguered, we're going to take our country back through our authoritarian leader. But these people weren't that, they weren't populists. They were just like good old fashioned elitists. Mm-hmm. You know, like back to the aristocracy kind of attitude, 
And I think that doesn't get talked about enough at this moment. I think that's a real tendency. Mm-hmm. We just interviewed a few weeks ago uh, Jeff uh, Mann, who's a geography professor mm-hmm. who you probably know, and he's got a book out with uh, Verso Climate Leviathan. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, him and other people as well have been sort of talking about this worry about the climate emergency and the kind of responses. You know, people like Christian Parent here are calling for a stronger role for the state. Other people are 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 are, are talking about a people powered movement, and then. And people like Jeff are this, you know, he sort of draws out a quad quadrant of, you know, many scenarios that could play out, but the real worry of of a kind of uh, authoritarian kind of uh, approach to dealing with, you know, mass displacement of people and all of the things that, that come with these kinds of things. And I'm wondering, you know, uh, did this come up in, in the film? Well, I and, think that that's you know. part of what's feeding this. So I... You know, this is why I think we have to be very careful about our terms in this moment and why I'm, you know, as I I was writing the book and as I was making film, I was thinking a lot about how many books have been written about populism right now. Um, And and there's a tendency for um, liberals in the center... I'm kind of wonking out. Is this okay? No, this, yeah, it's, 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 it's totally great. We, <laughs> it's totally great. We, we just had Gwen Dyer last week who's written a book on climate wars and he was talking about populism as a tactic, right? Yeah. And, it's, and it can be used by the left or the right and it's a mode. Yes, yeah. but I think that I think we're going to go into an authoritarian direction in the sense that, um, in the sense that it's, it's just talking to those, these kids and if they, they figure out a rhetoric that doesn't doesn't depend on democratic legitimacy, right? And so, you know, something like the climate crisis and these n- numbers where we're seeing, okay, you know, potential for in, in a short span of time for 2 billion people to be displaced. I hate that word. It sounds so kind of uh, clinical, mm-hmm. but we don't really have, a, you know, this is, they're gonna, that's going to enhance the sense of minoritarian, <laughs> you know, being minoritarian, I don't know what the word is, like freak out. Um, so, um, and there was a lot of conversation with these young Republicans about um, refugees, outsiders. It sort of made me, gave me the sense that that's the direction that things are going in. So, um, but, what, but what I was saying about um, the liberal center is there is this tendency to sort of call anything you don't like populism, right? So they're, they're in that sense, like, you know, a supporter of Trump is the same as the supporter of Bernie Sanders when, um, you know... A democratic socialist who has a kind of pluralist, popular, you know, pluralist politics and wants a kind of economic, you know, social democratic welfare state. I mean, it's just not the same thing <laughs> as a sort of Tea Party politics that wants to diminish the state. So I don't know. That word just kind of, that word is. I just am really wondering how useful it is these days. Mm-hmm. One of the things that comes up for me, you know, my my genuine fear around these questions, and I and I had the same kind of feeling mm-hmm. when I saw your film for the first time when it was here during VIF. I, I've lived in, in Haifa for a year mm-hmm. working with a Palestinian NGO, and you see a context in which you know people vote. There's a judicial system. There's a free press. But there's an increasing kind of move towards the right or the use of state policies to kind of limit uh, what would be normal practices. And you see it playing out in Brazil. You see it mm-hmm. playing out in India. You see it playing out in Turkey. And so there's almost like um, a kind of template being created where certain features or gestures are available. You know, you can go vote. You can do these kinds of things that are seemingly part of a healthy kind of democratic environment. But the ground beneath our feet is kind of shifting 
in a particular way where, you know, in the states, the, the amount of money in elections or these types of distortions of the systems that are in place. And I don't know if we have the arsenal to be able to deal with what's happening in, a, in the way that people are being left off the voter rolls and those types of yeah. things, like our capacity to articulate where the erosions happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that we have to talk about those things and give people a real explanation. And so I, I got in a debate with a man last night at, at the Q&A after the film, and he said, well, you know, after all of this, you know, what do you say to those people who don't vote? And I, my position was, okay, but we can't just be sanctimonious about it. We can't just say, okay, you have to vote, and that's it. We have to speak to their cynicism, to their frustration, right? Because there are all of these machinations that are happening. They're not imagined that are making, you know, it harder to cast a ballot or making, you know, the, the I mean, you know, there's the famous study, right, that came out of, I think, Princeton and Northwestern that essentially said the United States is an oligarchy, that regular people have literally no impact over, over policy. <laughs> and so we have to, you know, we have to talk to people about, we have to, you know, I think be honest and provide, uh, the left has to provide an alternative explanation, right? And this is why... You know, uh, there has to be, there has to be an explanation. The right is providing an explanation, and, and the explanation is, it's those outsiders coming in and taking what's ours, right? If we could just shut the door on them, you know, and get back to our sort of imagined wholeness, everything would be great. Okay, our explanation has to be different. It's no, it's actually, you know, the the elites, billionaires who are extracting, who are who are taking all this wealth that like the most that regular people produce and there's enough to go around. You know, if we could just share what actually exists, there's 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 enough for everyone, right? Like six billionaires literally control the wealth that half of humanity has. I mean, that that is just out of, you know, that's like unbelievable. So I don't know. I think we have to give we have to give explanations. I don't think it's like beyond people's capacity to understand what's happening. Um, but just sort of Telling people to proceed as normal and like, okay, somehow we'll like roll the clock back, you know, in five years. I don't know. That, that, that to me is like the disaster approach, mm-hmm. you know. And I guess, you know, one of the things <laughs> is that we can't organize in this type of environment that we're living in. When can we, you know? Yeah. This is- oh, that's interesting. Like a lot, yeah, people do tend to come up to me too and be like, how do you have hope? And I'm like, you know, read history. Like things have, it, like people have organized against a lot more challenging conditions than the one that people in North America like now find themselves in, you know? Um, I don't know. I mean, to me, I'm just like, it's, I think things are still in play. There's a lot of democratic spirit right now. Um, You know, I don't think people being discontented or cynical is always a bad thing. It's about how we channel that and how we use that for, to deepen democracy and to imagine new ways of, of doing things. So I'm, I'm not at all sort of hopeless, but there are things that scare me. Um, I was wondering about the um, going back a little bit about about the discourses of populist regimes, mm-hmm. and uh, I noticed that there's always this discourse of fear, right? Injecting fear into the population, mm-hmm. and and it it always surprises me, like how far people are, like how many liberties people are willing to give up mm-hmm. for the promise of protection, yeah. right? For example, in, uh, my I'm part Brazilian. My family lives in Sao Paulo, my, my parents' father's family. And um, uh, a lot of them actually voted for Bolsonaro. Yeah. Even though I, like, I cannot stand 
his discourse, right? I can, he basically represents everything I hate, <laughs> you know, I, everything I cannot tolerate. And um, the, the rationale behind it was that the sense of insecurity in Brazil in general is, is so, you know, everyone is so alert and so genuinely fearful of, of leaving their houses mm-hmm. that the promise of, you know, um, uh, someone from the army coming in and, and saying that they're going to put things in order and even toy with the idea of going back to dictatorship. Like Brazil has already had a dictatorship in the 70s, no? and a 20-year dictatorship at yeah. that. Um, so, you know, like it's a fairly newly recovered democracy. Yeah. And at the side of, danger, of uh, you know, of violence, of street violence and corruption scandals as well, but those are debatable as well, um, they're willing to give the power back, yeah. you know? So I guess my question is, how do you think, like if, if, if we need to trust each mm-hmm. other, you know, in, a, in, um, in order to create a, a democratic knowledge and a democratic education, a democratic... Um, society in a way mm-hmm. how do we f- um fight fear how do yeah. we overcome fear oh well, it's a great question it's a question that's foundational to political philosophy i mean when you said that jeff's book is called climate Le- leviathan i mean that goes back to hobbes right and the big question for you know hobbes who's like the father of social contract theory was you know I mean, he's living in the English Civil War, and it's not pretty. I mean, this, you know, and so he was like, well, what, 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 what should people do? Well, basically, sacrifice liberty for security. And so his vision was, you know, of all people basically saying, okay, I give up my, my freedoms, I give up my rights to this Leviathan, to this, you know, absolute state, you know. Um, and in return, I just get to be safe. And I think that's why I mentioned Abid's comments, because you have to empathize with that impulse when somebody's life is on the line, right? You know, and so I think that's why it was important to have his voice in the film, to be like, okay, but let's, let's just be real here. Like, lots of people are experiencing things <laughs> that the average Canadian viewer has never had to deal with. So, you know, but then what's amazing is that trick still works, Right, I mean, the, the, it's not a trick, but the sort of like offer from the state, like, okay, give me your liberty, I'll give you security. Like, you know, that was that was a very George W. Bush move after 9-11. So what is interesting to me, though, is the pockets that didn't buy into that. So, for example, I was in New York City on 9-11. New York City didn't want to make that sacrifice. New York City was very much against the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, the people who are least fearful of immigrants tend to be people who live in diverse communities with lots of immigration. So it seems like the antidote in some ways to these issues of fear is, you know, contact, firsthand experience, you know, um, breaking down these sort of mediated myths or this propaganda by actually like encounter, right? Because it turns out that when people live in communities with lots of immigration, they like it (laughs) and they become pro-immigrant. So I think that's where the hope is. That's where the trust comes from. Mm -hmm. It's when people don't have any real knowledge, right, or experience that they, that they, 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 you know, um, they are more open to this sort of demagogic manipulation. I think the Brazil thing is really interesting too, because it's something, it's like, you know, the very wealthy, you know, income inequality is so great there, but what happens is then you end up having to 
drive around in an armored SUV that's been imported from Iraq, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and I think we have to, there has to be a case made like, no, actually security, security isn't just physical safety. It's also, you know, it's, it's got this economic component that if everyone has a, has a floor underneath them, everyone's basic needs are met, again, there's enough to go around, then like security is something everyone can have, not at the expense of another person and not at the expense of liberty at the expense of our freedoms. And, you know, that's a case that leftists have been making for a long time, but we have to keep making it, you know. Astra, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for, for joining us. Wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> thank you for listening to our conversation with Astra Taylor. If you want to learn more about the film and the book, you can follow the link in the episode description. Thanks again to Astra for sharing her time with us. Thank you to our production team. And thanks to you for listening. We'll chat with you in two weeks on Below the Radar. <laughs>